We're reading Acts 5, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. All right, good morning. Uh, kids, where are you guys at this morning? Raise up your hands. All right, so my first question for you is... What is today? Halloween. Who's excited about Halloween? How many people are excited about Halloween because uh, you get to dress up in costumes? How many people are excited about Halloween because you get a bunch of candy? Which is better, costumes or candy? Who says costumes? All right, now put it down. Who says candy's better? All right. So the first thing I need this morning is I need an example. I need somebody to tell me what you're going as for Halloween. What do you got, Ramona? Elsa. All right. Ramona is going to dress up as Elsa for Halloween. Okay, now I have a follow-up question, Ramona. Are you really Elsa? No, so you don't have like magical powers where you can free stuff? Are you sure? Okay. Who else is going to something for Halloween? What do you got, Jaren? Mario. So you can like jump and break, break blocks with your head and eat mushrooms and get taller? Eat flowers, shoot fireballs? You can't do that. Okay, but you're going to dress up as Mario. What do you got? Black Panther. Awesome. So you have a, like a vibranium suit that you wear around? You can fight people? No. Zaylee? A dragon. All right. You can breathe fire, I'm, I'm assuming. No. Okay. So the reason why I'm asking these questions is because today we're talking about lying. What's lying? Ben? So when you like say something that's not true, right? Great answer, Ben. So when Ramona says she's Elsa and Jaren says he's Mario and Nolan says he's Black Panther and Zaylee says she's a dragon, is that lying? No. I, I agree. No, right? It's not. Because none of us really think that Ramona's actually Elsa, right? 
we know that it's Halloween and people are dressing up in costumes. Lying is when we, we mean to trick people. When we are really saying something is true when it's not true. When we dress up in costumes, we're not really saying we're those people. We're just putting on a costume. Lying is bad because we are supposed to be people that speak the truth. Why, did, why is it important that we speak the truth? What, what, what do we know is true? Who do we talk about on Sunday mornings? You can, you can just shout it out. Jesus. Jesus, right. Jesus, in the Bible, in John chapter 14, verse 6, says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the truth, which means that when we're saying things that aren't true, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be people that represent Jesus. We can't represent Jesus when we're lying. We're, we're actually representing the devil when we lie. And so we want to be people that speak the truth. And so kids today, uh, we're going to talk about that with your parents. And I would encourage you to go home and ask your parents more about what they learned about honesty, what they learned about this passage, um, and then remind them that Halloween is coming. You got to get ready to go out and get all that candy. So let's, let's pray together, and then we will get into our passage this morning. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone to figure out what truth is, but that you have revealed yourself uh, in your word and, and through your son, that you make known to us who you are and, and who we are as your creation. And so we pray this morning that as we, we look at this passage, that you would remind us of your truth Remind us uh, of the realities of, of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us and of the good news that we have in him. And help us to see that, that we are to be an honest people. That we aren't meant to, to tell lies or deceive or to mislead or to, to hold back from speaking the truth. We pray that as we look at this passage, that you would help us by your spirit to understand it together and, and apply it to our lives. That you would, would convict us of sin in our life and encourage us, build us up. Jesus, draw us closer to yourself and deeper into relationship with you and, and stir the love and affection we have for you this morning. By your spirit, we ask these things in your name. Amen. So today... We're talking about Ananias and Sapphira, um, which is kind of, it's kind of a weird story. It's kind of an odd story. It's kind of a shocking story. And, and when, we, when I was kind of going through Acts and, you know, thinking about how to, how to break up the books, book of Acts, what I, what I really wanted to do was to talk about this alongside Barnabas, because Barnabas is kind of like the positive example. He, he had land, he sold it, he brought it to the apostles uh, and, and didn't lie about it. And so that's, that's great. We celebrate that. Um, Ananias and Sapphira did a similar thing, but they lied about it. And then, you know, as in red, they get struck down dead. Um, and that's, that's, that's different. That's, that's shocking. That's, uh, that's a little more Old Testament, a little less New Testament for us, right? We don't, we don't want to think about things like this happening in the life of the church. And so my first instinct was to be like, let's talk about them together. And I can be like, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira, that's bad. But, but Barnabas, let's talk about Barnabas. He's, he's the good one. He's the happy story. Let's focus on that. But I think instead we should, we should sit in this passage um, because we've been, we've been talking about gospel culture a lot as a church. 
uh, about the reality that we want to be a people who not just believe and embrace the truths of the gospel with our heads and with our hearts, but we want to be living it out through the culture, through the way we act towards one another, uh, with the way we act towards people in our community. And honesty is a big part of that. We want to be people who speak the truth, people who, who don't deceive, people who don't mislead, people who don't shrink back from talking about the truth, the truth of who we really are, sharing that with people, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And the good news is we're already doing that, right? All morning long together, what we've been doing is we've been speaking and singing truth to one another. And so like we're, we're already halfway done, right? We've, we've already been doing it. That's great. Um, but there's more good news. The, the good news is that the answer to us recognizing that maybe we don't speak the truth as much as we should, or maybe we do lie and deceive and mislead and aren't honest about who we are, the answer to that isn't to keep deceiving. It's not to stay in our lies. It's to go toward the truth. And what we do with that is we speak the truth to one another in love. We talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. The antidote to lying isn't more lying. It's going to the one who is the truth. And so this, this morning, as we walk through this passage, um, we're going to talk about some, some issues, some, some, some hard problems with this passage, ways in which it, it makes us uncomfortable. Um, but then we're going to end by, by focusing on, I think, what this passage has to teach us. And it's the, the gravity of the sin of lying in the life of the church. And so uh, as we walk through this, uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the problems that come up. We're going to deal with those. But then at the end, we're going to come back and kind of talk about it from a, from a higher level. And so the first thing that I want to point out about this passage is that I think the presence of this story in the book of Acts underscores or, or emphasizes the truthfulness of this book, right? If, if you were Luke and you were just making up the book of Acts, right? None of this is true. You're just, you're just making up stories to, to create this narrative for this Theophilus guy so you can try to convince him that Jesus is really real and his spirit is really working and you were writing the book of Acts, why would you include this story? Right? Luke has been telling us about who the church is, right? Last, uh, a couple weeks ago, right? They, they, they have everything in common. They, they meet needs. There's not anyone who has needs. They're all, they're all generous. They're all these great, wonderful people that have this amazing community. Why would he put this story right here after all of that? I think the only reason why he would do that is because it actually happened. And he's telling the true story of the Acts of the Apostles. And this is part of that story. And so he includes it. So I think it underscores the truthfulness of the book of Acts. I think another reason why the presence of this story, even though it's kind of weird, uh, should encourage us is because it shows us that even with all those passages that highlight all the great things that were going off in the life, in the life of the early church, they didn't have everything together. Right? There, were, there were broken people in their midst, which gives me hope because I am a broken person in the church, right? I fall short. I don't measure up, just like all of you, right? And so sometimes when we hear stories about a guy named Barnabas, we can think, man, everybody was like that in the early church. But not everybody was. Ananias and Sapphira were there. They got killed for it. 
So we don't want to be, we don't, we don't want to be unrepentant like they are. But we can be broken and be members of his body and repentant. So I think it should be encouraging to us that this story is here. But I think more than anything else, the reason why I want us to kind of sit in this passage and this passage alone is because I think it should be sobering to us. Right? It should, it should raise in our minds and in our hearts an awareness for the gravity of our sin. Right? It's something that God took great lengths to root out in his church and to root out in his creation. He sent Jesus so that we would have a way out. We're going to talk about that as we move through the passage this morning. So the first thing Luke does here for us is he kind of sets the stage for this, this narrative that's about to unfold. He gives us some, some background information that we need in order to understand the interchange that's about to take place. So there's this guy, Ananias. He has a wife who's named Sapphira. They have some land and they decided, right, they saw Barnabas sell his land and lay it at the apostles' feet. And everybody's like, oh, Barnabas is such a great guy. Let's write down that story so we can tell everybody about it for generations. And they're like, I want that kind of attention. I want people to look at me like they look at Barnabas. And so they decide they're going to sell their land, but they're not going to actually be like Barnabas. They just want to appear to be like Barnabas. And so they decide they're going to keep back some of the money for themselves. But when they bring it to the apostles, they're going to say they're bringing all of the money. So that's what's taken place. And then we kind of jump into the story where, where Peter is talking with him. Peter says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So the first question we need to ask is, how does Peter know this? I know it, you know it, because Luke, as the author, has given us that information. But how does Peter know? Where does he get this information? He's going to tell us, right? Why has Satan filled your heart uh, to lie to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit has made this known to Peter. Peter does not have this information. It's not at his disposal. It's not like the early church has a bunch of people out in the community that are spying on all its members, and they come and they tell Peter about what's going on. Peter knows this because the Holy Spirit has made it known to him. So either Peter has some sort of you know, ongoing spiritual gift that gives him the ability to discern whether people are telling the truth or not, or this is a kind of momentary, specific empowerment for this situation that he might know in this time and in this place that Ananias is lying. But he knows the Spirit has given him this knowledge so that he would see this lie that's coming in, creeping in to the life of the church. But he also asks Ananias why he's doing this. He knows what he's doing because the Spirit has made him known, but he's still going to hold him accountable for it. He acknowledges that Satan has tempted him, but Ananias is the one that's called to account. I think it's important for us to recognize when it comes to sin, right? We are tempted to sin by, by Satan, by the world, by our flesh, but, but we're the ones that are accountable for it. We can't be like Adam and say, oh, it was that woman that you gave me. Adam decided to eat the fruit. His sin is on him. So Peter's going to follow up with some more questions, trying to, trying to get at what's going on in Ananias' heart as he's trying to deceive the church. 
on these questions he's about to ask, uh, where he says, uh, while it remained unsold, did it not remain in your your own, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? These are, these are written in such a way in the original language as if they, uh, they assume a yes answer. So this is like a, a, a nearly almost completely rhetorical question. And we do the same thing in English, right? If I say like, kids like ice cream, don't they? Like I'm, I'm leading you to answer that question with a yes, right? Kids are excited about candy, right? Yes right? We, we, we have questions like that too. And that's what Peter is doing here. Uh, he, he knows the answer. He's acknowledging the answer. These are more like statements than questions. The point here is that Ananias owned this property. Him and Sapphira had this land. They could have done whatever they wanted to do with it. They could have kept it. They could have sold it. Once they sold it, they could have taken the money and given all of the money to the church. They could have given some of the money to the church. They could have given none of the money to the church. It was their property. They could do whatever they wanted to do with it. The problem here is not what they did or didn't do with the land. The problem here is not their generosity. The problem here is their deception. The fact that they have lied about what they did with their land. And Peter says, Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. You have not lied to man, but to God. So let's take a step back here. And at face value, who is Ananias lying to? Peter, right? But Peter says, you've not lied to man, but to God. So why does Peter say, if Ananias is lying to Peter's face and the other people that are there, why does he say that he's lying to God? I think there are two reasons for this. The first is that first and foremost, all sin is against God not against others. Someone walks up to you and slaps you in the face. That sin, as much of an affront as it is to who you are as a person, that sin is primarily against your creator and not against you. Right? You are a secondary sinned against person in that situation. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying I don't feel bad for you that you got slapped in the face. I'm saying that that sin is primarily against God and secondarily against you. The reason why that is, is because sin is in an action or a attitude or, or a nature that is opposed to what God desires for us. Sin is bad because it's when we say what I want or who I am or who I want to be, that is more important than what God says about all of those things. Sin is, is rebellion against him. And so any sin, no matter how personal it is against us, is first and foremost against God because he is the one who defines what sin is and sin isn't. Sin is an act of rebellion against him. Secondarily, it affects us. So I think that Peter is saying that Ananias is lying not to man but to God because his sin is primarily against God. I think secondarily, we see that Ananias didn't just lie to Peter. He's lying to the church. Peter is there as a representative of the apostles. The apostles are there as representatives of God in his church. The church is there as representatives of Christ in their community, in their city, in God's creation. So Ananias here, he's lying to the church, and that's a much bigger deal than lying just to Peter. 
right? This isn't a guy that's just lying about a land deal, right? He's intentionally trying to deceive and manipulate the people of God so that he might receive higher standing in God's family than he should have otherwise, He's trying to look like someone who is doing the right things for the right reasons, but he's not. He's a a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is giving Satan a foothold in the life of the church. And that is why this action is confronted with the ferocity that it is. That's why it's opposed to the degree that it is. That's why Peter says he's lying not just to people, but to God, because he's opposing the church and who they're supposed to be. He's working against Jesus in the life of the church. He's working against the spirit in the life of the church. He is lying not just to man, but to God. And Luke tells us that when Ananias heard these words, when Peter stopped questioning him, stopped talking, Ananias falls down dead. Immediately. And young men come in, wrap him up, take him out, and bury him. Ananias lies and then is killed. There are a few issues here that we need to talk about. The first one is what killed Ananias? Or maybe who? A lot of scholars... Uh, who this passage makes really uncomfortable, say that, oh, it's the shock of the confrontation. Peter opposes Ananias. He, you know, gets really worked up about it. And then there's some sort of cardiac event that happens and he dies. Maybe. It's certainly medically possible, right? It's happened before. People have gotten so stressed out that their, you know, heart gives out. Medically, you know, I I don't know what the cause of death was. But theologically, biblically, I think this passage is written in such a way to show us, to tell us that God killed Ananias. That this is an an act of, of instantaneous, immediate judgment for sin. And like that, that leads to a whole lot more questions in my mind. But I think that's what the plain sense of the text teaches. I think we could do a bunch of flips and gymnastics to try to try to get out of that. But I just don't think anything else really fits. And so that leads to my second question. If God pours out judgment on him immediately... Why wasn't Ananias given a chance to repent? Why doesn't, why doesn't Peter call him to repentance? Why doesn't Peter preach the gospel to him? Why doesn't he do a bunch of other things in this situation? Other than say, hey, there's people at the door that are going to come and carry out your dead body. Well, first of all, We don't know that he didn't. The information we have is the information that we have. Luke did not write down every single thing that happened in the life of the church. Right? He has to be selective with what he's saying to, uh, to us as readers. He can't include everything. Otherwise, this book would be, would be massive. It would be huge. Um, and so he has to be selective. And so he doesn't, he doesn't give us the whole story all of the time. So we don't know that he didn't give him an opportunity to repent. 
But also, we do know that Ananias would have been given opportunities to repent. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, this. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we know from this passage that Ananias was tempted by Satan to do this thing. We know from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God is faithful. We know that from the whole of Scripture. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he promises that whenever we are tempted, there is always, 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 always a way out of that temptation. We will never be tempted beyond what we can bear. That means that whenever we give into, uh, whenever we give into temptation, it's not because the temptation was too big for us, too much for us, too powerful enough. It's not that it just beat us. It's because we made the choice to give in. It's because we made the choice not to take the way out that God faithfully provided us. And so Ananias the moment that thought first popped into his head to say, I'm going to sell my land, I'm going to keep some of it for myself and give the rest of the apostles. The moment that happened, there was a way out. He could have taken it. He could have repented. When him and his wife talked about what they were going to do, there was a moment, there was a way out. They could have repented. When Ananias was dividing the money up at his home, there was a way out. He could have repented. He could have turned back. As he was walking on the way to go to where the apostles were to lay some of the money at their feet. He could have taken a way out. He could have repented. He could have turned back. All along the way, there was moment after moment after moment where he could have turned back. He could have repented. He could have put his faith in Jesus instead of in his own ability to manipulate people to raise his reputation in the life of the church. There were lots of opportunities for him to repent, but he didn't take them. So God pours out judgment on him. The next question, which is similar to why didn't he have a chance to repent, is, is where is God's grace in this passage? Where's, where's the grace of the gospel in, in this account? I think first, we need to recognize that God had shown Ananias grace. There's evidence of that even in this story. Right? He, he had property. Where did he get that? Right? Every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the Father of lights. God gave him that graciously, generously. Where did he get his wife from? Right? Everyone who finds a wife finds favor from the Lord. God had given him these things. God had shown Ananias grace. But instead of it causing Ananias' heart to, to love God and respond to him in that way for those things, in order causing him to steward that well, he used it as an opportunity to manipulate the church. I think we also need to realize that in this passage, God is showing grace. He's showing grace to his church. 
Think about all the damage that would have been done in the life of the early church if this lie went unnoticed. And this person who, who wants to clean the outside of the cup while leaving the inside alone became a person like Barnabas in the life of the church. Imagine if instead of Barnabas being Paul's first missionary partner, it was Ananias. And he kept lying and kept deceiving and kept manipulating people so that he could look good but inwardly was rotting away. God spared the church from those things graciously. He protected them. He didn't allow Ananias to hide as a wolf in sheep's clothing, but called him out and then took him out. This is not the kind of grace we're most comfortable with, but it is grace. The fourth kind of issue with this is at the very end, right? He dies. The young men come in, wrap him up, and carry him out and bury him. And then in the next little chunk, verse 7, we're going to find out three hours later that uh, Sapphira comes in, his wife, and has no knowledge of what's taken place. And so just imagine if your spouse died, And we, as your church family, just buried them. And then three hours later, we're like, yeah, he's already out there. Everything's done. This does not seem kind or loving to Sapphira at all. So, couple clarifications, I think, help us understand it a little more. I don't think it gets any better, but it helps us understand it better. First of all, like during this time in this culture, like immediate burial was, was not immediate, but like soon burial was common, right? They didn't have refrigeration. It was hot. And so people were buried usually the same day they died. It wasn't like here where you could kind of maybe schedule a funeral on a more convenient day so that more people could come. There it was, we've got a body and it's hot and we want to put it under the ground or in a tomb so that it doesn't smell. So this seems incredibly rushed to us, but it would have been less rushed to them in their culture. Second of all, it would have been very uncommon for this to happen. So it's not, common, not uncommon to be buried the same day, but be buried without your family would have been really weird. I think the reason why this happens is because the way in which this story is presented to us, right? This is the, the, the early church, Luke, the apostles, they clearly understood this as an act of judgment on Ananias and on Sapphira. So because of that, they are trying to get this person out of their midst, They're saying, God has struck him down. Let's take him out. Let's bury him. Let's do it right away. It's it's hasty. It's quick. I don't think it makes it any better. But it's what they do. And I think that if Sapphira would have responded differently when she comes in, I think she probably would have eventually understood. But let's move on and see what happens with her. She comes in, not knowing about what has happened. She doesn't know that her husband's 
already buried. She doesn't know that he died. She doesn't know that he got found out. She doesn't know that Peter knows. Um, she doesn't know that it doesn't really even matter if Peter knows because the Spirit can make things known to Peter. But she comes in. Peter questions her. Peter gives her the opportunity to repent, to speak the truth, to not lie, to not carry it out. But she doesn't. She agrees. She says, yes, the price that Ananias said is a price we sold it for. Look at what Peter says in verse 9. He says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. In Peter's words, she's learning several things. She learns, first of all, that she's been found out, that it's known that they've lied, they've tried to deceive. Second of all, she learns that her husband is already dead. Third, she learns she is about to die. People are ready to bury her. They're already here. And so, even if we could make an argument, make a case for Ananias' death being somehow medically caused by the stress of the situation, that just doesn't fit with Sapphira. Peter, Peter calls it before it happens. Right? He says, you're going to die, and then she dies. Which, as we're going to see in our passage next week, Peter, Peter, people begin to act a little differently around Peter after this event and others. <laughs> she dies, and she goes out, and she's buried by her husband. Same thing, same reason, same everything taking place. Luke says that that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Right? I mean, if, if something like this happened in the life of our church, right? If somebody tried to like lie to Daniel Miller and he was like, don't lie to the spirit of God. And then they died I'm not going to talk to Daniel for a while. <laughs> I'm going to keep, keep my distance, you know. Uh, that, that, would, that would make me very uncomfortable. Uh, but this makes it clear that holiness mattered in the life of the early church. Just like holiness matters in the life of our church. Right? The good news is that Jesus came and lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father so that we don't have to. He died in our place, paying the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. It's not about what we do. It's not our holiness, our righteousness that earns us favor from God. It's, it's his. And so that means it's not about what I do not about whether I'm holy because I'm not. It's not about whether I'm righteous because I'm not. But that doesn't mean that what I do doesn't matter, right? Because of what Jesus has done for me, because he's brought me into his family, I'm supposed to be someone that strives to bear the family likeness. Therefore, as beloved children, be imitators of God. He is holy, so you should be holy. 
He is faithful, so you should be faithful. He is trustworthy, so you should be trustworthy. Those things don't earn us favor from God, but we are called to be people that strive for righteousness and holiness. It's not about what we do, but that doesn't mean that what we do doesn't matter. I think specifically in this passage, we see that we're called towards holiness with respect to being truthful, honest people. Lying is bad. First of all, it's clear. I've already said this, but I want to make sure we, we get this. They are condemned. They are struck down, not because of a lack of generosity, but because they lied. And so the, the harshest, most immediate act of judgment in the New Testament against sin in the life of the church is against lying. Which, which is a little surprising. Like I think I, I would expect it to be something else. But it's against lying. And so Why? Why is lying such a big deal in the life of the church? Why is honesty so important in the life of the church? Well, it's because dishonesty versus honesty, it's not just about what we do. It's about who we are. More more specifically, it's it's about whose we are. So in John 8, 44, we read this. This is Jesus speaking to the Jews. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the devil is the father of lies. He's the source of lies. And Jesus, in talking to the Jews who are lying about who he is, tells them, you're of your father, the devil. Last week, we talked about Barnabas being a a son of encouragement. And he's given that nickname because of the way the father-son relationship functioned in the ancient world. Who your father was, was who you are. What he did was what you did. His status, his standing, it, it, it was what you had as his son. And so when Jesus is calling the Jews sons of their father, the devil, the father of lies, because they're lying, he's saying, you're bearing the family likeness. You look like your dad. You're acting like your dad. You're being who your dad is. We, on the other hand, are not called to represent him. We're sons and daughters of God. And the reason why lying matters is because when we lie, when we're dishonest, when we deceive, when we shrink back from honesty and shrink back from speaking the truth about who we are and where we're at and who Jesus is and what he's done, when we hold back from truthfulness, we are not being who he has recreated us to be. We are living like we are still sons and daughters of the devil rather than sons and daughters of God. We are called to be an honest people because we serve an honest God. We are called to speak the truth because our Father always speaks the truth. 
We are called to be people who, who don't deceive because he never deceives. This is who we're called to be. Lying, like we talked about with the kids, is making an intentionally deceptive statement. But not lying isn't the standard for us. Right? It's not just about like not doing the bad thing. We're to go completely the other direction. We want to be as honest as possible. Sean, when, when talking about the difference between niceness and kindness, said that uh, kindness is telling people there's something stuck in their teeth. Niceness is not doing that. Honesty is kindness. In that moment, being honest means telling that person there's something in their teeth. To not do that is dishonest. It's not lying, right? Lying would be saying you don't have anything in your teeth. But the honest thing to do in that situation is the kind thing. Those are the kind of people we are called to be. Even when speaking the truth, even when being honest is uncomfortable for, for other people or for us, that doesn't matter. I think God is a lot less concerned about our comfort than we think he is. We're called to be honest. God hates lies. I think that's evident in this passage. And my hope is that by his spirit, he roots out ferociously lying and deception and dishonesty and shrinking back from speaking the truth uh, to others in us. Obviously, I don't want anyone to die. But I want us to take it seriously. Because he has acted this way before, and there's no reason for us to think that he can't or won't or shouldn't do so again. Right? The way the early church responds to this is within intense pursuit of holiness. And that's how we should respond to this passage too. We shouldn't respond thinking, this will never happen again. This won't happen to us. This won't happen in our church. So it doesn't really matter. Honesty leads us to Jesus, who died in our place for our dishonesty. Lies, deception, half-truths, they lead us away from him. They cause us to be okay with our sin. They, they make us more like the devil. They, they draw us away from Jesus. Jesus gives life to us. He is truthfulness. And that's who we're called to be as his people. So let's pray together. And then let's continue singing and speaking truth to one another in the rest of the service. And after service, Let's be honest with one another. Right? We should have somebody at the door that's checking people as they leave to make sure there's no food in their teeth. 
And if there is, we'll come back in here and we'll do this all over again. Right? Let's be honest with one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you, you are honest and kind. We pray that you would, by your spirit, make us more like you. Help us to be kind and honest to one another. Help us to boldly and courageously and compassionately speak truth in love to each other. Pray that you, by your spirit, wouldn't let us hide. But that we, in deception, in lies, in half-truths, in dishonesty, that we would be found out. And that you would help us to see that way out and take it. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that we can forever sing the truth about who you are and what you've done for us. And it does not get old. We cannot exhaust the grace that you have shown us and are showing us and will show us. So we pray that you would continue to be with us as we seek to worship in spirit and truth and to fellowship with one another in honest and kind ways. It's in your name we pray. Amen.